There's really no excuse for what we saw in August. Terrorist groups are celebrating all over the world. Transnational terrorists, the terrorists that could strike our capitals, uh, have not been eliminated. The war in Afghanistan may be over, but the blame game is well underway. Joe Biden pointed his finger at the Afghan forces, accusing them of being unwilling to fight for themselves. But how fair was that? My guest this week is Douglas Lute, a retired three-star U.S. general who advised both George W. Bush and Barack Obama on the Afghan war. He joins me now from Salt Lake City. Will America accept its own share of the blame for the return of the Taliban and the chaos and misery of the final withdrawal? Douglas Lute, welcome to Conflict Zone. Good morning. Since February last year, everyone knew that U.S. troops were leaving Afghanistan, and yet by August this, this year, the U.S. still didn't have a coherent plan for making that happen. How do you explain that disastrous lack of foresight? Well, of course, we had, in the midst of that period that you described, a presidential transition, right? So it was under President Trump in February of 2020 that the agreement with the Taliban had us leaving by May 1st of this year, 2021. Uh, and of course, Biden was elected in November, took office in January, spent several months from January to about March or April uh, reviewing uh, the Trump decision, the agreement, uh, assessing his options, and announced to the American people in April of this year uh, his plan to adhere to the Trump agreement, to actually extend the timeline by several months in order to give us more space. Um, and, and I think largely the discontinuity between February 2020 and what we saw just play out last month is largely attributed to uh, the transition between two administrations. Well, you asked yourself the same question August the 15th, didn't you? You said it was a puzzle, a puzzle for me, the absence of contingency planning. Right. You have a lot of clever guys at the National Security Council, and no one planned this withdrawal. I'm just wondering how something this vital dropped through the cracks. Doesn't say much for planning, does it? Well, I think there's, there's no question that there was a, there was a letdown, that there was, a, there was a, uh, a period of inadequate planning. My, my assessment here... And while I wasn't obviously in the White House at that time, is that the planning took place under the premise of the most likely outcome once we withdrew uh, and took too little account, if you will, bought too little insurance against another intelligence scenario. And that would be the most dangerous. And at the end of the day, it played out that the most dangerous course actually is what we saw. And this is with the Taliban moving quickly and with the government collapsing. President Biden claimed that although the situation had unfolded, as he put it, more quickly than anticipated, the administration had planned for every contingency. That simply can't have been true, can it? If it had been, the U.S. wouldn't have been forced to rush thousands of troops back into Afghanistan to try and protect, protect the final exit. Yeah, again, I, my view from the outside looking in is that they put too much planning effort, too much attention on uh, on a more optimistic uh, scenario, which was that they had months, if not several years, to do the evacuation, and too little attention on this very brief, abrupt collapse of the government. 
I guess this is a matter for a, a future inquiry to go into, but um, the warnings were there. According to the New York Times, a CIA report in July said the Afghan security forces and central government had lost control of the roads into Kabul and that the viability of the government was in serious jeopardy. That was July. And that apparently didn't ring any alarm bells at all at the White House. Why? Well, I, I, I'm not sure that's accurate. Um, I mean, yes, there may have been internal warnings by July, but remember that the government was already at that point and the military at that point, the Afghan military, were already collapsing. You go out into the rural areas outside of the big cities in Afghanistan, this is actually a collapse that began months, if not years ago, with the steady erosion of the security situation. Um, and by July, it was evident that the politics of this collapse was going to overwhelm the military situation. In fact, this was more a political collapse than military. But it was obvious even before July, wasn't it? Because you had the threat assessment by the director of national intelligence going back to April, which said the Afghan government will struggle to hold the Taliban at bay if the coalition withdraws support, which is exactly what the coalition was doing. Will struggle. Well, counter, there, were, there were also countervailing estimates that the Afghan security forces, which we had fielded over these over this decade plus of investment time, right, that that uh, set of army and police would stay in the field, would fight, uh, and would continue to resist. And at the end of the day, they did not. Knowing all this, knowing the, the, the lack of planning that went into it and the confusion, you said at the end of August, the U.S. can be proud of the last few weeks in Afghanistan. My question to you is proud of the chaos and misery inflicted on countless thousands trying to get out of the country and still trying no, to get course, out of the country? Of course not. No, look, of, co of course not. Uh, that comment uh, was referring to the evacuation of 120,000 people under duress, uh, under a very bad situation, which we had found ourselves in and actually contributed to. So I'm talking about the response uh, after the collapse of the government, not, of course, uh, to the prelude. Former U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Steve Bigun called the exit hasty, sloppy, and panicked. And I'm wondering what kind of message you think that sends to America's friends and partners, that when it really matters, there's no proper planning, and that its military performs hasty, sloppy, and panicked operations. Well, look, this is not a proud moment uh, for America. Uh, the period between the decision in 20. 20 in February of 2020, and what we saw in August just last month of 2021, that 18-month period uh, does feature, I'm afraid, uh, insufficient planning, insufficient preparation, uh, and, and so forth. And we saw the results of that, those insufficiencies play out on the ground. There was a, there was a broken promise here, wasn't there? Because if, if I may, there's really no excuse for what we saw in August of this year. Both administrations, the Trump administration, which made the agreement with the Taliban, and then the Biden administration in the last six months, a bare part of this responsibility. Was this a one-off failure or something we should be concerned about for the future with America? Well, it, it's very hard to link this event, this performance, uh, to something uh, prospective in the future. I, I will think, I do think, that America's ability to deliver both on the international stage, but also at home, 
uh, deliver on social justice, deliver on uh, the fight against COVID, deliver on um, the, our economic recovery, uh, is viewed across the world, and and America is judged by its ability to deliver. So this is not this is not a good moment. This is not a positive moment in that uh, in that uh, in that period. And, and and quite frankly, our reputation depends on our ability to deliver. Beginning it's at home, it's, it's also add. about keeping promises, isn't it? Because um, George W. Bush's promise, we will not waver, we will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Peace and freedom will prevail. Did the agony and suffering that accompanied America's exit look like peace and freedom were prevailing? Didn't, did no, it? No, look, of course not. Um, but look, America's reputation, I think, or the reputation of any power, uh, is based on two principal factors. One is uh, the values of that country, the values of America in this case, and second, the ability to perform, the ability to deliver on those values. And I think in both instances, uh, we have a lot to learn from this example in Afghanistan. Douglas Lute, as for dealing with terrorist groups in the country, which was the reason for deploying there in the first place, 13 of your servicemen were killed at Kabul airport by a terror group which didn't even exist when your war began 20 years ago. 13 along with at least 170 Afghans. You and others have said repeatedly that the terror groups had been decimated. It didn't look like it that day, did it? So, of course, the strike that day last month was by the branch of the Islamic State, uh, which cropped up in Syria and northern Iraq in 2014. So you're right that that Islamic State uh, organization terrorist group did not exist when we went into Afghanistan 20 years ago. Um, the decimation uh, that I was referring to that you quoted me on was for the core group of Al-Qaeda, which of course was the transnational terrorist group that brought us 9-11 and took us to Afghanistan in the first place in 2001. Core Al-Qaeda in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region is decimated. And in fact, the last major attack outside of that, outside of that region itself attributed to core al-Qaeda was the attack in London in 2005. So core al-Qaeda, our original objective in Afghanistan, uh, have been decimated. Ambassador, you say this, but in, in June this year, a report to the UN Security Council said a significant part of the leadership of al-Qaeda resides in the Afghan-Pakistan border region alongside al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. Large numbers of al-Qaeda fighters and other foreign extremist elements aligned with the Taliban are located in various parts of the country, located in parts of the country. They're not on vacation, are they? Well, they're certainly not on vacation, but they are a fraction of what they were in 2001. And I think um, the proof here is in their ability to perform. And they have been unable to launch attacks out of that region uh, on, on our country and, and on uh, the country, our allies in Europe. So I think the evidence here is that while they're still present, they're not eradicated or eliminated, they're just a fraction of what they were in terms of their ability to project themselves. The warning from the UN Security Council report said that it's impossible to assess with confidence that the Taliban will live up to its commitment to suppress any future international threat emanating from al-Qaeda. Do you really imagine that having already broken most of the promises they've made, the Taliban really intend to keep this one? 
Well, look, I, I certainly don't believe we should trust the Taliban. Uh, and, and that's why we have to have an ability to watch this region, to monitor this region, and uh, when justified, to strike this region with precision uh, and in a timely way. But, but frankly, from outside Afghanistan, not from inside. Douglas Lute, among many who served in Afghanistan, there's particular anger at President Biden's comment that the U.S. can't go on fighting for people who wouldn't fight for themselves. General David Petraeus, who commanded NATO forces in Afghanistan, spoke out pretty forcefully against that. He said, let's not forget who's been doing the vast majority of the fighting and dying on the battlefields in Afghanistan, which is why I found the comments about the Afghan forces not fighting disappointing. But you, to some extent, went along with Biden's comments, didn't you? Why? Well, because I think the evidence supports that statement from the president. Look, there were elements of the Afghan security forces that did fight hard uh, in these last months, in particular, the Afghan commando or special forces units, which we invested a lot of time and attention uh, to developing. But there were also uh, many, many Afghan forces, which simply deserted the battlefield uh, in the wake of the pressure from the Taliban. But look, this is this gets confused, right? This is in in some cases we talk about the uh, the material factors of war, so the numbers of troops, numbers of weapons, types of weapons, and so forth, right? But what we saw play out in the last sort of 90 days in Afghanistan was the dominance of the moral factors, the intangible factors, which played which which played out much more prominently than the material. So here I'm talking about unit cohesion, discipline, connection to the central government, uh, leadership, and so forth. And in those moral factors, what we saw in the last 90 days is that the Taliban dominated the Afghan forces. But, but be fair, Douglas Lute, the U.S. made it impossible in the end for the Afghans to fight, as David Petraeus pointed out. He said, I think at a certain point in time, the Afghans realized there was nobody coming to the rescue anymore. Nobody has our back. There's no emergency resupply. There are no reinforcements. There's no medical evacuation and there's no close air support. What choices did you give them other than to either cut a deal, flee or surrender? Well, well look. First of all, uh, it was no surprise to the Afghan uh, forces or the Afghan government that the United States in February 2020, 18 months ago, signed an agreement to be gone by, April, by May 1st of this year. So this wasn't so, some sort of unannounced surprise withdrawal. The deal uh, sold fact, them out. Was, they were sold out at this deal, weren't they? It was done over their heads. So, well, the Afghan government was not a, part, a party to the agreement between the U.S., uh, and the Taliban, but they were also not surprised uh, by that uh, by that agreement. It was 18 months ago, and we should also we should also be fair that in 2014, the Afghan government agreed that its forces 2014, seven years ago, um, that its forces would be in the lead for security across the country. So th this is not something that broke in the last couple months. This has been a long, steady morale? erosion. What do you think it did for Afghan morale when the government was sidelined, told to talk to the Taliban about a settlement? Why would the Taliban settle anything with the government when they knew the U.S. was leaving? And it was a pretty immoral deal, wasn't it? Basically said it's fine to attack the government forces as long as you leave Americans alone. So you can blow up as many Afghans as you like, but leave us out of it. 
The former yeah, of head course. of British intelligence, Alex Younger, went so far as to say that that created a dynamic which led directly to the collapse of the Afghan army. He was right, wasn't he? Well, I, I think there was a contributing factor, but I don't think it was the only factor. And I don't think anybody sitting in London, uh, Berlin, Paris, or the United States can attribute exactly what happened inside the Afghan security forces. I would argue that an equally important contributing factor was the fact was the consideration that the Afghan forces did not feel supported by their own government, uh, with uh, with President Ghani leaving, uh, with their leadership um, ripping off, uh, uh, stealing their salaries for months on end, with their leadership not adapting their tactics to the Taliban and so forth. So there are a lot of contributing factors here. When you, when you take suitcases of cash to former President Hamid Karzai, as the CIA did regularly on a regular basis, and then accuse him of not keeping proper accounting procedures, it's like, uh, it's like a, a drug gang uh, giving free heroin to an addict and complaining that he's using it. Um, the fault didn't just lie with the, with the Afghans, did it? No, no, I'm not, I'm not attributing this all to the Afghans. Uh, of course, we played a role. We were there for 20 years. We certainly did not. Um, we did not adhere to all of our values. We certainly did not deliver either on the governance side or on the military side as we should have. Um, but this is also, on the other hand, not completely laid at our feet. There were colossal failures, though, right from the start from the American side, weren't right. there? I'm just looking yes, uh, at, a, at one example. Two years after the war began, the former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld complained about a staggering lack of basic intelligence. I have no visibility, he said, into who the bad guys are. We are woefully deficient in human intelligence. The fact is this mission failed at every level, didn't it? I think it failed from the outset, as that quote from uh, Secretary Rumsfeld suggests, in, a, in our lack of a basic understanding of Afghanistan. And here I'm not talking about uh, simply uh, the Taliban versus the government uh, or the Northern Alliance versus the Taliban, but a very deep understanding of the geography, of the political culture, of the economy, of the very fractious political set uh, in Afghanistan, and then also a very deep understanding of the neighborhood of the regional dynamics. And in 2001, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, we went into Afghanistan without that kind of deep understanding. And when we set very lofty goals in those early days, based on a lack of humility, based on a lack of common, uh, a basic understanding of the dynamics in Afghanistan, we set ourselves up for what we saw last month. Another problem was that successive administrations were also lying repeatedly to the American people about how things were going, exactly what the notorious Pentagon Papers revealed about the war in Vietnam. A case of history repeating itself. And I say lying because this, this wasn't an idle accusation, was it? It came from John Sopko, head of the federal agency set up to investigate waste and fraud in the war zone. His comment to the Washington Post, the American people have constantly being lied to. And he, of all people, was in a position to know that, wasn't he? Well, look, um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't agree that senior American officials were deliberately deceiving the American people. If you go back and look at presidential statements, speeches on Afghanistan, uh, if you go back and look at testimony before our Congress on Afghanistan, it seems to me much more balanced that on the one hand, we were making progress. On the other hand, we faced major 
uh, major challenges. So I, I don't accept the Washington Post claim uh, that there was a major effort of deception. I but it certainly, came from John I've been involved in this. It came directly it from John from, Sopko. And he, it's fair enough. He gets to have his, his view of this. He gets to have his perspective. It's simply not my perspective. I want to look at the damage to NATO that has been done by the withdrawal and various other things that have happened since then. Biden didn't consult with the Allies about the withdrawal. He claimed he had, but they contradicted him. Do you think that's an honorable way to treat allies who honored NATO's collective security guarantee and sent their troops to fight and die alongside you, not to consult them on the way you're withdrawing? Is that an honorable well, look, thing I, to do? Look, I've seen, I've seen the reports that you refer to from European allies, NATO allies, that they were insuffici insufficiently consulted. But I think the record defies that. I mean, before the Biden announcement, there was a meeting of defense ministers. Our defense minister was there. Afghanistan was on the agenda. Before the Biden announcement, Biden decision, there was a meeting of foreign ministers. Then there was a meeting of foreign ministers and defense ministers, all held in the format of 30 allies at NATO. Of course, there was the NATO summit in June of this year. So the record here of high level, persistent, and, and rather intense consultation in the six-month period, the first six months of the Biden administration, I think defies the notion that there was insufficient consultation. And now you have, of course, Secretary General Stoltenberg, the administrative head, the executive head of the alliance, also, also saying, stating that there was full consultation. Well, he has said that, but not for nothing do you get a senior member of the European Commission saying something is broken in our transatlantic relations. And he's not just referring to Afghanistan. We're already seeing the result of damaged relations after the US, UK and Australia did a deal over nuclear submarine behind France's back. Proud moment for the alliance, the recall of ambassadors. China and Russia must think that Christmas has come early this year, mustn't they? Well, Look, you're right to point out that this is, uh, this is not a, um, a high point for the NATO alliance. There's a lot of work to be done. But I think the foundations of the alliance are still very strong. And why is that? That's because our European allies and our North American allies, U.S. and Canada, very much rely on one another for overall security. So we've been through in the alliance through tough times before. I mean, think Suez, think Vietnam, think the missile crisis in the 80s, think the Iraq war in 2003. Uh, we will get through this together again. America's final aggressive action in Afghanistan was described by the Pentagon a few days ago as a tragic error. Uh, the U.S. targeted what it thought was a terrorist vehicle in Kabul and blew it up in a drone strike, killing 10 civilians, seven children among them. There couldn't really have been a worse exit, could there? The faulty intelligence, no, faulty intelligence it's, it's, does, doesn't inspire confidence, does it, for the future operations that you may have to undertake in Afghanistan? I think that strike, which I think is rightly uh, attributed as a or, or, or referred to as just pure tragedy, reflects the reality on the ground when, uh, when, as we go forward. As we transition from a model of counterterrorism, which featured tens of thousands, and in one case, 150,000 Western troops in Afghanistan, to a new model, which is a model with no troops on the ground and are doing uh, counterterrorism from 
as we say, over the horizon. So from outside Afghanistan, we're in that transition period right now. And that strike with the 10 civilian casualties demonstrates how difficult this is going to be, especially as uh, our intelligence assets will have diminished without our on the ground presence. But difficult does not mean impossible. I think we will learn from this strike. Uh, I think that we'll be more cautious in the future, uh, but it does, it does demonstrate that intelligence is really the key to counterterrorism. And in this instance, the intelligence failed. You may have ended your longest war, but as Britain's former intelligence chief, Alex Younger, put it, the end was a humiliation for the West and will have encouraged despots and autocrats everywhere. In that way, you may have sown the seeds for many other wars and conflicts in the future. Doesn't that worry you? Well, look, we're going to have to watch Afghanistan and the Afghanistan-Pakistan region for years to come because transnational terrorists, the terrorists that could strike our capitals, uh, have not been eliminated. Uh, but our withdrawal from Afghanistan doesn't mean um, failure elsewhere in the world. Uh, and, and I believe that... But they're celebrating. Terrorist groups are celebrating a, all over the world. There's a, there's a countervailing argument, and that is that uh, persisting in Afghanistan, keeping troops there, uh, propping up a government uh, which was not supported by the people, um, at the cost of tens of billions of dollars a year. And by the way, essentially sustaining an intra-Afghan war between the Afghan government and the Taliban, which was causing 10,000 civilian casualties a year. Um, sustaining that status quo was also not in America's interest and did not project an America that was, that was sober and prudent with regard to its interests and where it invested its resources. So I think there's a countervailing argument as well. Douglas Lute, it's been very good to have you on Conflict Zone. Thank you very much indeed. Good to have you. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you.